Well, good morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And this morning, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 16 through 24. I remember when I read the article in the Times-Picayune um, about a pastor who had identified that the need for the ministry in that moment was for a private, um, kind of top-class um, small plane. Uh, to be able to travel um, because of the importance of being able to get from one side of the world to the other without having to stop to refuel. Um, That was part of the reasons kind of put in the article. And this article in the Times-Picayune, this was several years ago, brought all of this um, criticism toward ministry as a whole and just where dollars go into ministries. Um, And truth be told, as a culture, we didn't need that article in that instance to bring us to asking those questions. In fact, it may be that you're here today and that is one of your chief concerns about the established church and about denominational structures, whether they be like the Louisiana Baptist Convention or the Southern Baptist Convention or other denominations, um, that you look at these at these groups, these organizations as, as churches and then larger organizations in denominational life, and you say, where's all the money going? How is the money being spent? Um, is it the best use of funds? Um, and those sort of questions. And chances are, if you've been involved in church life at all or have, have had your, your head out of the sand at all, you've seen probably abuses in your own day. Even if you're just a reader of the paper like I am, um, you just you know just turn and, and boom, there it is of things that make you say, is that really the best way to spend money? And is that really what I want to be giving to um, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, if you have ever found yourself wondering about the financial integrity of the church and of other structures and things like that, well, then I just want you to know you're in good company. Um, The believers in the city of Corinth were asking the very same questions. They had some of the same concerns that you and I have today. And truth be told, what we can kind of lift from this passage is that some of their questions were really targeted at even the Apostle Paul who is responsible for writing most of the New Testament, um, especially the letters and the epistles that we have, is they're kind of looking and they're wondering about a couple of things, about his authority, but then also this, this fund that Paul is helping to manage to be able to meet the needs of believers, specifically in the church in Jerusalem. And we talked about this in weeks past, but there's been a famine to hit the land. There's hardship in the land. There's persecution in the land of Jerusalem and in Israel. And and what's happening in this moment for the people of God, and that is speaking of the church, is that they're going through a time of difficulty. Whereas in the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, what we read is that there was, there was provision being made as people were selling lands and giving up possessions. And the, descriptor, the, the, the description that Luke gives of the early church in, in Jerusalem was that there was no needy person among them. Uh, all the needs were being met. There, there was no need. But then things changed. 
And now Paul is always mindful and is trying to grip the, the affection of other believers for the very difficult situation that is being faced by believers because there now are needy persons among them. Um, in fact, there's a whole lot of need in Jerusalem. And so that's what's going on here. But, but there's this question that's kind of surfacing right now for the church in Corinth is, is the money really getting there? Is that really where the money's going? You know, Paul, are you staying at the Marriott on the way back to Jerusalem? It's, it's those kind of questions of where, where is the money going? How, is it being spent to help the needs? And so that's where we find ourselves. The questions being answered today are of a nature that I think many believers are asking today. And today, God's Word does not call us to some blind, just throw your money at it, don't ask questions, and just pretend like everybody's a good person. Instead, what we see is instruction to the church about the need for spiritual leaders and the need to trust those spiritual leaders. That's the, the responsibility being placed on the church in Corinth and being placed on us today is the importance of spiritual leaders leading and managing funds in these ways. But then Paul in this exact passage then turns the table and speaks to spiritual leaders and says, and it's important that you earn and keep the trust of the people of God. It's important that there be careful consideration, that there be intentional thought about how finances are done for the people of God and for the distribution of things like this fund that was established for the church in Jerusalem. So I want to invite you to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. Again, we stand to honor God who speaks to us from His Word. And beginning in verse... 16, we read, Thanks be to God, who put the same concern for you, that is the church in Corinth, into the heart of Titus. For he welcomed our appeal and being very diligent, went out to you by his own choice. We have sent with him the brother who is praised among all the churches for his gospel ministry. And not only that, but he was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with this gracious gift that we are administering for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We are taking this precaution so that no one will criticize us about this large sum that we are administering. Indeed, we are giving careful thought to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before people. We have also sent with them our brother. We have often tested him in many circumstances and found him to be diligent and now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker for you. As for our brothers, they are the messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show them proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you. Father, I pray thanking you for your word this morning, that as we as a church are walking through these two chapters, of your word, that you speak not only a message calling us toward generosity, but toward a careful generosity, toward a mindful generosity, toward a, a, a generosity infused with integrity from every angle. So Lord, today I pray that you would purify the bride of Christ with your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This idea of 
suspicion. This reality of abuse and of misuse of funds meets us here today. You see, the early church only being maybe 20 years in existence, if that, from from the known believers beginning in Jerusalem, there's already suspicion. You then add to that 2,000 years of history and of many instances of abuse and misuse of funds. It's amazing that anyone is able to extend trust anymore today. But yet, God's Word is calling us to this reality. As we've gone through this series, we have been careful to define just a main idea for us to be able to take away and to carry is kind of a summary of what God's Word says. And so the summary that I give to you today, the main idea that I hope that you'll carry with you as you consider this passage this week is this. Generosity is an act of trust. Generosity is an act of trust. I think it's important that that be acknowledged, that anytime someone gives to the church, Anytime we give to our convention and to the larger work of missions going on in our state and nation and among the nations, that it is an act of trust. And so to acknowledge that. But trust is something that ought to be earned and something that ought to be maintained. And that's what Paul is seeking to do here today. Paul is striving to establish the grounds for why they ought to trust that the funds are being being spent appropriately. But then he's also, by means of writing this and the way that he's dealing with it, trying to maintain the trust and strengthen it all the more. So let's walk through this passage and consider this reality that generosity is an act of trust. Well, first of all, it's important for us to remember that it all begins with this, that it's an act of trust in God. Number one, that's who you're giving to. You're giving when you give to God. So you're trusting God with the gift. I think that that's the most important foundational thing for us to begin with when we talk about this reality of giving. You see, Paul has already anchored it very well at the beginning of chapter 8, reminding them of this reality that God is a generous God. And that then, as he entrusts to them, it's so that, as he says in verse 14, at this present time, your surplus is available for their need, so that their abundance may in turn meet your need, in order that there may be equality. As it's written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. Paul is reminding them that this reality of generosity is grounded in who God is, a generous God of grace who gives who gave ultimately of himself by giving the gift of his son. But then secondly, he is the one that then gives to them so that they have something to take care of their needs and then to meet the needs of others. Paul says the same idea when he talks about the importance of working with your own hands. He doesn't just say so that you'll have something. He says working with your own hands to meet your needs and then have something to share with those in need. Paul is all the while understanding that this idea of generosity is anchored first and foremost to trusting God, the God of generosity. So from that ground, we can now build on what generosity and how stewardship is to look in the church. Because first and foremost, we're acknowledging that God is in control of this thing. And let us be warned by the testimony of Scripture that when we lie to God, there is a great price to pay. Number two, Generosity is an act of trust in spiritual leaders. 
Generosity is an act of trust in spiritual leaders. You see, it's easy for us to latch on to that first one, right? That, that generosity is, is first and foremost an act of trust in God. I don't know anybody that says that they don't trust God. Uh, or actually, that's not true. I do know people that say they don't trust God. But within the church, when people are giving a gift, they say, well, I trust the Lord, but I don't trust the pastor. I, I trust the Lord, but I don't trust the finance committee. I, I trust the Lord, but I don't trust... And we, we begin to modify our trust, but it's important for us to see that the way that God in His grace is designed for the church to function is not with no leaders, but with leaders that have been appointed by God Himself. I mean, this is why Paul in every letter anchors himself to this identity of Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. I mean, he identifies very clearly, this, this wasn't my call. I didn't decide that, you know, I'm a leader type, and so I'm just going to be in charge of the church. No, God appointed him to this task. He's a messenger of Jesus Christ. And so that's why he's able to speak with authority, and that's why leaders ought to be able to lead with authority. Not because they're better at finances. Not because they're the guy that has the title or the corner office. Instead, this whole thing of spiritual leadership is supposed to be about appointment and about calling. And I want you to see how Paul puts it forward here. You see, as Paul even begins this letter of 2 Corinthians, he writes, Paul, verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. So he's establishing already that this is God's appointment, that his spiritual leadership in the church was God's doing. Then we look and we see Titus. Thanks be to God who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus. And so we look and we say, well, who is this Titus fellow? Titus is a man that we see both serving with Paul, but then also one that's being used by Paul to help do things. We see a letter, one of the pastoral epistles to Titus. So there's First and Second Timothy and then Titus. And Titus, it's explicitly instructed by Paul that I left you in Crete to do these things, like to appoint elders and to raise up these leaders within the church. And so Titus is one who has spiritual leadership within the church. But it's important to note that Paul is acknowledging even here that he has been selected by God. Thanks be to God who put the same concern in you for you into the heart of Titus. In other words, Titus is a spiritual leader among you, and he has a concern for you. And then he continues in verse 17, for he welcomed our appeal and being very diligent, went out to you by his own choice. Uh, That's an important idea. Paul uses this word by his own choice only twice in the New Testament, and they're both occasions are found here in chapter eight. And the first occurrence is when people are giving. When the church in Macedonia is giving, it's, it, Paul says it's by their own choice. We didn't manipulate them or tell them to. They said, no, we want to give. And in the same way, Titus is saying, I want to go. I, I want to go and be with the church. I love the people of God. You know, there's a willingness that God looks for in these servants, in these spiritual leaders within the church. As he defines what an overseer and a, and a deacon ought to be, he often in those criteria says, you know, if, if someone wants to serve, that if they want to serve, they desire a noble task. That's how he communicates is, is that there ought to be a desire within them. In 1 Peter chapter 5, when Peter is speaking about spiritual leadership, he talks about, you know, doing it willingly, not under compulsion. 
And so it's important for us to see that, that Titus is a spiritual leader who wants to care for the people of God, who wants to shepherd them, who wants to lead them into this specific thing of generosity as well as spiritual maturity. And then it goes on. So like we're establishing who are the spiritual leaders. So Paul, appointed by God. Titus, thanks be to God. And then look at verse 18. It says, and we sent with him the brother. Now it just says the brother. We don't know who it is. There's, there's commentaries that can take guesses and things like that. But at the end of the day, we don't know who the brother is. But we have sent him with the brother who is praised among all the churches for his gospel ministry. Who's he talking about? A spiritual leader. He's most likely talking about a pastor kind of shepherd type that is helping to shepherd the churches that he ministers among, and he is praised by them. He is one that has been faithful in this task. And so all of these believers are saying, this is a spiritual leader among us. This is one whom you can trust. And then he says, and not only that, but he was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with the gracious gift that we are administering for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. Notice what happens here. This brother was appointed by the church. This is something that, again, because we don't know his rank, it's just he's the brother and he has a gospel ministry. This could be a deacon. This could be a lay leader. We don't know his rank. His office is not named. His name is not even provided. He's just the brother. And this then gives lens to the importance of churches appointing within themselves those who are going to help with the matters of financial integrity within the body. You see, this was a man who was esteemed. You know, I think back to Stephen in Acts chapter 6 as one who was esteemed among the believers, one known to be full of the Holy Spirit, who was then appointed. And we look at those, those seven and we say, well, these are probably the first deacons that were appointed to serve us, even though it doesn't say that they were deacons. They were serving. They were taking care of widows and their need for food distribution. And we look at them and what we see is that they were spiritual leaders. I mean, Stephen then gets up in the very next chapter in Acts chapter 7 and preaches the best and longest sermon in the New Testament. It's recorded in detail. It's unbelievable to see this one who was just among the people, who was known to be full of the Spirit, then appointed for this task, and now for this moment to serve, if you will, as a committee member, as one who says, I'm just going to be sure that there is financial integrity in this because, Paul, you are carrying a large sum of money. This is significant. I mean, they didn't have the banking systems that we know today. They didn't have some of those CPAs in their, in their pockets to be able to, to look over the books and do an audit. There weren't those sort of practices, but financial integrity was still expected. And so now we have this one appointed by the church to serve. I want to take a little time out for a moment and acknowledge that here, even here at First Baptist, the way that we do finances is not just by entrusting the, the, the checkbook to the pastor, not even entrusting the checkbook to just the staff, but instead in, in a co-laboring way, we labor with a committee chosen by you. Real fast, and I know that 
the folks on this committee will, will uh, you know, uh, stone me later, but that's okay. If you're on the finance committee, will you just stand right where you are? I just want the church to be able to see whom they have appointed to this, at this task of service. You see several right here in the front. There's two over there in the back. And then there's several more, so there's nine. You guys can be seated. It is such a joy to work with these men and women who are of, of, of multiple races, various ages, to be able to labor with them for the integrity of the ministry. And it is not the case that the pastor, spiritual leaders of the church are saying, well, I think we ought to be doing this. And then the finance committee is just a bunch of people that are just thinking about bottom lines and, and those sort of things. And no, we just want to do this. No, we're co-laboring. These are spiritual leaders, men and women, who have been appointed by you to labor with the, the pastor and the staff in order to serve the church and meet needs around our city. You see, I love the process right now. You know, I spoke a moment ago when we were talking about our hurricane relief fund. There's money that's been set aside just for the hurricane relief fund. Well, how can you trust that? I mean, some of you may have made a gift into that fund to be able to help people. How do you know that those dollars are going where we say they're going? It's because it's not just cash in my pocket. It's money that's being put into account. And we have a, an application form that not just the pastor approves, but the pastor and, and some of the staff is helping to do some of the intake and identify needs. And then is making recommendation to a subcommittee of the finance committee to then look at that. And over the weekend, I received an email just asking some clarifying questions about one of those applications for help to be sure that we are doing what we need to be doing in this specific situation. And I love that those sort of questions are being asked by the committee who, who are just wanting financial integrity for you and for the people that have given so that then as we give those gifts, we do it for the exact express purpose that you gave it to help those impacted by Hurricane Ida. That's what that fund was set up for. And Paul set up a fund to help the church in Jerusalem and everybody that was giving to it needed to know that that's what it was going to. And I want you to see as I go into great detail about that, the integrity that takes place in this church and for anybody that maybe is, is preparing to be a leader in a church or maybe you're, you're gonna move and be part of another church, expect that sort of integrity in the ministry. It's what Paul is saying produces health. It is when the church is treated like a business. And I'll just let you know that when we talk about different denominational structures within Baptist life, one of the reasons I love being a Southern Baptist or a Great Commission Baptist is we, one of the hallmarks of our identity is called congregationalism. And what that means is, is that as a church, we vote on things that you're looking to me for spiritual leadership. You're wanting me to, to give guidance to where we're going, but I don't do it in isolation. I, I'm not just being given everything and say, just you, Chad, you just write the check to whatever you want, whenever you want it, doesn't matter, here you go. Instead, we co-labor together to go in directions that God is leading us. But just be cautious. Many non-denominational churches, unaware to many of the membership, just so you know this, is a private business. Many times the pastor who founds the church owns the building. All of the funds that are given go into an account managed by his oversight alone. And in many of those ministries, you have great financial abuse and misuse that results in people falling away, all the while 
a proclamation being, being told to the people about the importance of tithing and the importance of sowing into the ministry and those sort of things. So just be aware that wherever you go and whatever you lead, that there is financial integrity according to God's word. I mean, see it on the pages of scripture. It's not just Paul. It's not just Paul and Titus. It's Paul and Titus and the brother. And then look, there's another guy. Verse 22, it says, and we have also sent with them our brother. I mean, like there's a bunch of brothers on this trip. We've sent with them our brother and we have often tested him in many circumstances and found him to be diligent and now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. So, so get the picture. There's the churches that are giving the gift. They've got a guy represented. Paul has a, a, a person with him, Titus, who cares deeply for the church in Corinth. He's on the team. Paul's on the team. And then Paul says, and then we brought in another brother who's very diligent. And that idea of diligence is he's a bean counter. I mean, is the idea that he, he really is an attention to detail kind of guy. So he's going to be sure that things are done the way they ought to be. And you say, wow, I mean, Chad, I would have never actually probably stopped and thought about this because this is kind of, you know, maybe even a little boring. What is often boring and maybe like you're like, wow, that's a lot of detail for stuff that, you know, I just want to know like how to have a good week this week. I promise you, you're going to have a better week this week when there's financial integrity in this church and there's financial integrity in the life of God's people and we're meeting needs the exact way we're saying we're meeting them than the week when you find out all the money you've been given was spent in inappropriate ways. That's going to be a bad week. So while this may not seem very applicable in the moment, know that it is. Because God knows that that is one of the most wounding events that takes life in the, in the life of a believer is when they have trusted someone and they have given sacrificially and generously to something. And then all of a sudden you realize that money was squandered. That money did not go where it was supposed to go. And that person you trusted, well, how can you trust anybody again? And then people walk away from the church. That's why it's important. I'm convinced that's why Paul puts so much detail. I mean, just think about the amount of space that he's devoting just to saying who is helping carry the gift and administer it. Paul continues. So we've already established that generosity is an act of trust in God and generosity is an act of trust in spiritual leaders, all of whom are defined right here. Paul, Titus, the brother, our brother. You've got four guys that are helping to manage this. But then Paul turns and speaks to the leaders, speaks to me, speaks to, to anyone who is managing gifts given by God's people. Finance committee, I invite you to special attention here. Verse, verses 20 and 21. Paul says, we are taking this precaution so that no one will criticize us about this large sum that we are administering. Paul is cautious. He's mindful that a lot rides on what happens with these funds that are given. That if he does this well, then people can trust that they can give generously and it helps more and more people. He goes on, indeed, we are giving careful thought to do what is right not only before the Lord, but also before the people. This is important. Paul is clearly speaking to the leadership and saying, it is important that you are cautious 
it is important that you are careful in thought as you lead the people of God. You see, there are instances like happened this week on a Thursday morning. I was walking through the hallway and one of our disaster relief volunteers, Brother Jimmy, you were sitting there right across from him. He said, I set this aside when I came here because I just knew that I was going to meet someone in need. And he then handed me five $20 bills. And he said, I want you to give that to someone that needs it. So $100 is given to me. Now, usually what I want to do immediately in that moment is just like say, well, why don't you walk with me over to this giving box and we'll just drop it in there. But he took time, Brother Jimmy, say, I want this to go in the hands of somebody that needs it. Well, what did we already have scheduled where we would meet people in need? Going out every Saturday morning. And so I put that $100 in an envelope to the side and I kept it there. And then on Saturday morning when we arrived here, Kimberly had gotten all the details set up and my family and I, along with Rebecca Callahan, were able to go and to help serve a widow out in Norco, Laplace area, and to go and to clean up limbs will never be the same, you know, our bodies at least, from doing all that work. But it was such a joy to serve her. And at the end, do you know what she tried to do? She said, here's a, here's a check for your ministry. And it was folded up. And I said, no, ma'am. No, ma'am, Miss Yvonne. We have a gift for you. And in that moment, this widow, I'm sorry, this gets me. You could tell that there was just this strong ethic in her that she had been served. And so the right thing to do is then to make a contribution for that. But she was probably given more than she had to give. Her home was, I mean, in bad shape. She's a widow. She's lost two of her adult children in the last two years. And to watch her shoulders drop when I was able to take the gift that had been entrusted to me. And Jimmy, I'm able to stand before you right now to complete that story so you'll know. And then to be able to do that with my wife and children, put that in her hand. No second attempt made to try to get that, that gift to us, but to know that not only had we come to serve her, but we had come to take care of her needs and to walk with her and to put something in her hand. You see, it's important for that brother to know that he can look to a pastor and say, I want this to go in the hand of someone that needs it. And then for there to be integrity in the life of the church and in the life of these gifts and in the lives of the givers to know that the money gets where they said they needed it to go. That's how the church is strengthened. Paul knows that. And so he gives careful attention to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but before the people. And then Paul concludes with this. You see, these four men are, are coming to him. Paul says that, you know, that he is hopeful of coming to them. We, we think that likely he did not, but Titus and these two men are arriving with him so that there's three witnesses to the gift. Paul then ends with this in verse 24. He says, Therefore, show them proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you. You see, Paul ends with this. Generosity is an act of trust that serves as proof of love. 
Generosity is an act of trust that serves as proof of love. We're saying to God, God, we trust you and so we give and we entrust it to the church and to the spiritual leaders that will lead to the pastor and to that committee, that finance committee that's going to help make some of the financial decisions within the life of the church. All the while, God's speaking to the spiritual leaders and to the finance committee of any church and saying, be sure that this act of trust is done with caution and careful thought. And then Paul looks to each one of the believers in Corinth and to us today, and he says this, generosity is an act of trust that serves as proof of love. You see, I love what Paul does right here in this passage because the word that he uses for proof is a word that he uses only two other times in Romans chapter 3. And I invite you to turn there to Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. Paul writes, God presented him, that is Jesus Christ, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate. That's that same word to prove his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. Then verse 26, God presented him to demonstrate proof to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declared righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, essentially what Paul is proclaiming is this. He's bringing us back to the gospel and bringing the church back to the gospel. And as we come to this time of taking of the Lord's Supper, if you came in today and you did not receive one of these cups, I invite you just lift your hand. We have several deacons in the back who will bring one to you. The reality that Paul is again anchoring them to is this. This reality of the gift of the Son. Jesus Christ given. You see, when Paul speaks about in his blood, this righteousness being made available to the unrighteous, that's what this small cup of grape juice reminds us of is of the blood of Christ that was given at the cross. You know, when it talks about the righteousness being given, it was because of the righteousness that was embodied, represented by this, this small piece of bread, by Jesus Christ who lived a perfectly righteous life every day of his life. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that, that he was like us, yet in this way, he had no sin. He was perfectly righteous. A righteous body, righteous blood given for us that we might experience His righteousness. This is how God proved His love He gave. He didn't say, I'd be willing to give. Or I, I, I would give. He gave. And so Paul, in the exact same way here in 2 Corinthians says, now prove your love with this act of generosity. You see, our, our act of giving becomes proof of our love for God and for His people. And as the video that we've been watching reminds us, 
God wants this for us. Just as He wants righteousness for us in Christ, He wants us to live a righteous life characterized by generosity. And that His church would be a righteous church characterized by integrity in the area of finances. But in this area of proof, we turn again to 1 Corinthians 11, where we read this, in the same way, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread. I invite you to peel back the little layer over the bread and to take the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is proof of his love. Take and eat. And then peeling back the lid to the juice. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is proof of his love. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The proof of God's love for you was the gift of his son. And if you are here today and you have never experienced the love of God, you may have experienced religion, you may have gone to church, you may have even given money to a church or to a charity, but if you have never received the gift of love, I want you to know that that's what you need more than anything else in this world. You see, God doesn't need anything from you, but you need God. And God has proven his love for you in this, that while you are yet dead in your trespasses and sin, Christ died for you. By grace, you've been saved. This is not from yourself. It's not by work so that no one can boast. It is the gift of God through faith. This is the goodness and grace of God. And I want to invite everyone in this room to stand and to respond to the goodness of God as we sing a song of praise. But if you're here today and you've never received the gift of God, then I encourage you to come forward and respond just saying, I want the gift of grace. Father, I pray that in this moment of worshiping you, that the church will worship you and that we will prove our love to you in a multitude of ways, including this way of generosity as your word invites us and instructs us to do. But Lord, we know that we give because you first gave to us. So Lord, for the one, for the man or the woman, the boy or the girl, the teenager in this room right now, who has never received the gift of grace, I pray that this would be the day that they come to Christ, acknowledging their need and turning from their sin and trusting Jesus for salvation. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let us worship you respond in prayer as God leads.